Rebecca here. Welcome to the podcast for nerds, where we get to talk to some amazing professionals and ask them all about how they use data to solve the world's problems, highlighting some careers data related that you might not have thought about before. Plus, of course, we include some fun bits because we're all nerds here and we'd love to have fun. So with us today, we have Tristan Keelan. How are you, Tristan? Doing good. Thanks, Monica. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being on the show with us. We kind of start off all of our shows by understanding people's origin stories, kind of like a superhero nerdy theme, right? So if you could, please tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today in your career. Yeah, sure. So um, I took a, probably an alternative path to data in that um, I was a English literature major in college um, with aspirations to be the next great American novelist, journalist, um, what have you. And ultimately, uh, what that meant was um, I was a storyteller. And that was kind of um, what I like to do with words, um, tell stories, effective communication. Um, so my early my early work was in um, politics, in you know memo writing, drafting legislation. Um, I did RFP response writing for a commercial bank. Um, so really, just sort of trying to be persuasive with writing through storytelling. Eventually, I, I ended up working in the technology sector for um, an EHR company in the behavioral health and human services space. And it was really there that I realized what we were selling in software, as many people are, is the collection of data. And so in order to be able to tell those stories, I had to learn about what the data was we were collecting, how we were pushing it out, what people were going to do with it. And so without even realizing it over the course of about four or five years, um, I was learning a lot about databases and dashboard displays. And, and I had to in order to talk the talk with uh, my customers and understand what it was they were doing and, and what it was they needed. Um, so through while that's happening, right, simultaneously, I have to do my own reporting, right, on my own, my marketing you know, stuff and, and, and sales support stuff. And so I was introduced to this tool um, that everybody knows now is uh, Microsoft's Power BI. And it was early on, maybe 2014, 2015, something like that. And I'm like, oh, this is great. But I assumed it was something I couldn't use. Uh, it was something that other people were going to do um, for me because I just never saw myself as a data person, right? I just, I assumed, nope, I'm on the language arts side. There's other people who, who do that and it's not me. Mm -hmm. um, but when I had to report for my own work, I, I realized maybe this is a, a tool that I could use. And so I found um, my way through um, Power BI with sales and marketing data, which I, I understood. And that's really how I learned the tool um, so that I could take the, the learned application of the tool and now I could apply it to other data. And then it was about learning the data sets, right? Because I knew how to use the tool. So um, uh, eventually that led me into the behavioral health industry where I put those skills to use in writing data 
um, making reports and then running quality improvement process. So really for me, it was about getting into data so I could get back out of it and into, you know, telling stories with the data and creating process improvement um, with it, which is really now what I do now is help connect other behavioral health, human services, social care agencies um, with my organization, CCNY, who have a lot of people way smarter at this stuff th than I ever was, um, to connect them so that we can help those agencies tell their story and improve their outcomes for their clients. So what exactly is your title right now in your main roles and responsibilities? Sure. So I'm the director of business development for CCNY. So I'm looking um, out for, like I said, behavioral health, mental health, substance uh, use recovery agencies, um, social care agencies, foster care type pro programs, um, really those sort of pieces of, of healthcare that are not big hospital systems, right? They're sort of smaller community um, providers that um, often can't afford their own infrastructure for data analysts and, and big tools and stuff. So we're able to um, to come in and help them solve their data problems. And they're all unique and they're all good at have certain parts of their data all figured out and certain parts they need help with. It could be technical. It could be cultural. Um, a lot of places need help embracing data. They're like, we have it, but we don't understand how to get people to, you know, use it, read, react, get into a culture of continuous quality improvement. Um, so we provide, you know, a whole bunch of um, uh, service offerings, depending on, you know, where those groups are in that continuum. Okay. And you mentioned a little bit already about solving problems. What types of problems are you solving with that behavioral data? Yeah. So, you know, just a quick, you know, snapshot of um, of what the data picture looks like in, in behavioral healthcare, um, it's largely represents people, um, which is both wonderful, um, but also scary in the sense that um, that's a responsibility that you have to take very seriously. If you're short on widgets, you're short on widgets. If your people counts are off, you're not including whole heartbeats that are walking around doing stuff, right? So we believe that, you know, when we work with the data sets that we do, that the stakes are pretty high to get it right, um, to measure twice and cut once and, and whatever cliche you want to put against it. But um, <laughs> um, so, you know, clients who go to behavioral health agency for some sort of counseling, um, there's, you know, patient data that doesn't change very often, right? Like your, your name, your address, your social security numbers, your, you might have a diagnosis, a health, who's your health insurance carrier. So there's kind of that, you know, person owned set of, of, um, information. And then they go through what we call in the, the data side episode of care. So you begin counseling and you're in counseling for a certain number of time until you're no longer in counseling. And so mm -hmm. there's certain people with certain needs where they might always be in an episode of care, or maybe you need counseling for six months and you go back, but then maybe some another event happens in your life where you come back to counseling and you would have a brand new episode of care that has a start date and an end date. And then between those episodes of care, there's activities, things that happen, the sessions that you show up for, medications you might be prescribed, um, assessments, 
things that people might be doing. So just having that as like a general, I mean, I'm sure your audience is starting to like build data models in their head and like draw relational relationships. And that's exactly, you know, what it takes to, to make the numbers work. But there's a method of delivering services um, and, and they're known as evidence-based practices. And that means that some sort of intervention or way of, of treating a client has been studied at a research level, proven effective, um, and then sort of published for people to use. Like, okay, if I have a client that presents this way, if I treat them in this way, they're, they're likely because of research to have a positive outcome on the other side. So in order to do that, you have to execute with what you know we know is fidelity to the model. You can't just say you're doing an evidence-based practice. You have to actually do it. And that will include anything from, you know, these activities should be done in this order, or these activities should be done with a certain amount of time in between them, no more or no less. Or if you're outside of, call it like a prescription. And if you're delivery is has multifaceted things that have to happen on time in order with a certain level of um, expert delivery, then you have to measure if you're adhering to that. Mm -hmm. So it can start with something as simple as if a client comes for um, uh, expresses interest in seeing a therapist for for whatever reason. Um, a lot of standards say it should only take a certain amount of time before that client sees an individual face to face. Okay. Right. Like, um, let's just, it's sort of one of the hardest ones to talk about, but think about a crisis situation or like suicidal ideation. If somebody called a, a counseling office and said, I'm having suicidal ideation. And they said, that's no problem. We'll see you sometime next week. Well, so much can happen in a week. The sooner you get a client in, the sooner you can, you know, start to help them. And like I said, with the people involved here, like there's a lot at stake in terms of mm -hmm. people's mental health, their overall well-being. So the data that we work with our clients to support does two things. One, it does that story storytelling part, right? Here's how well you're doing. Here's how many people you've helped. Here's the degree to which you've helped them. Are they X amount better? on some pre and post scale, or um, in the case of, you know, like uh, foster youth, have they been uh, returned to their biological family or, or not? Or have they been successfully adopted to their foster family or some sort of permanency around that is, uh, is an example. Another example, like I mentioned, would be, you know, are you seeing clients who need help in a timely enough way to prevent them from self-harm? So, you know, the data that our clients want to look at is both that long range storytelling semi-promotional piece, right? If they're pursuing funding from foundations or things like that, but also that day-to-day -day operational piece of based on my data, here's what I have to do next. This group of clients needs this thing next and they need it timely. So you can help sort of guide that clinical process against what you know is an effective map. Mm -hmm. There are so many things running through my head right now because I have a background in security. So I'm hearing like PII and wondering what kind of different procedures that you guys have to adhere to. Sure. Um, being health, you know, HIPAA is probably involved in all of that. 
But one thing that I do want to ask is how do you collect the data that you're collecting? Because it sounds like a lot of manual processes and inputting data into a, a database. Is that correct? So the 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 com most common is through an electronic health record. So okay. when a, a client comes in, those agencies are going to, you know, enroll them in their system and sort of use that system to document um, the activity. And then the system, right, is meant to backend that data um, in ways that it could be, you know, spit back out, whether it's in a raw form or I, um, you know, an, an aggregate or organized form. Now, what's interesting for us uh, in, in, in what we provide is a lot of human service agencies, for plenty of reasons that is nobody's fault, um, can't really get to a single health record platform. Mm -hmm. So if you're providing um, any services on behalf of a state, the state likely, like a foster care program, the state likely said, you get, here's our system for you to use. And you have to use it because we're the state and we need to know what's happening with youth in, in that system. Mm -hmm. But then your, you know, your outpatient mental health clinic has to have a system that can bill insurance. So you've got that one over here. Um, maybe you're running... Um, a behavioral alternative school. Well, then you need a system that organizes curriculum and grades and, and, and all of that. So if you think about that as agencies have success and they grow and they start these different programs, <laughs> unfortunately, they tend to accumulate systems as well. Yeah. And so what that does for administrators, um, like executives, um, people who want to drive quality improvement is they can't see what's happening across the agency because it's siloed in different mm -hmm. systems. So we do a lot of our work is to pull raw data out of all those systems and then throw it into a place, a lake or a warehouse or you know, whatever terminology you want to you want to use and create that that reporting platform that can say, here's how we're doing for an individual, not here's how we're doing. Here's how we're doing in a program, because ultimately mm -hmm. it comes down to those people. And almost always there are clients who are in the system for this service and this system for this service. and they don't have a way to know that those are the same people in a yeah. in, da in data terms and it creates a lot of barriers so um so before we even talk about measures and reports and outputs a lot of our clients need a lot of work on it's the it's the unsexy stuff that you can't see right that this yep. audience loves it's um it's queries it's unique identifiers it's fuzzy connections it's all mm -hmm. those kinds of things yeah, that's the stuff that I really love and mm -hmm. exactly where my head was going. I was like, well, I know that these systems aren't talking to each other because of the security reasons. Mm -hmm. And how do you then create these reports that give those insights? And there just must be, I mean, what's the Pareto effect, the 80-20 rule, right? You're, yep. It's probably like 99 to <laughs> yeah right that doesn't equal 100 i know but <laughs> absolutely absolutely yes oh goodness so there's a lot of fun there right on on the cleaning and, and mm -hmm. modeling side yep. I, can, 
I can assume. Absolutely. Awesome. But you specifically are not in that world. You're more the quality improvement side of stuff. Yeah. So, so ultimately, you know, my agency does that kind of work. My specific role is to help those agencies understand that their problem is solvable because a lot of them are going along um, and they're just, you know, these people have a lot of work and they're providing care for a lot of people. And it's hard to find the time to step out and think big, big picture. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm able to show them, look, you're spending all this time every month, every quarter or whatever, you know, all roads lead through Excel is kind of what what happens, right? And nothing against Excel, but it's a lot of, you know, exports and manual manipulations and, you know, what, a couple of, uh, you know, a bunch of hours spread out over a bunch of weeks, spread out over a bunch of people is what it takes Mm -hmm. every month to get new, new data. And, you know, where where I get really excited is the concept, you know, I don't know if there's an industry a standard term for it, but I call it the time to report. Okay. If, if it takes a certain amount of time to get to your report and that time is significant and you have other jobs to do, right? Mm-hmm. These aren't data scientists. It's a data scientist job to spend that time. Right. Yeah. And so we look for, automation opportunities we look for consolidation opportunities we'll write our scripts we'll write you know query schedules like anything that can run without manual intervention because when you spend a ton of time making your report the god bless people but the last thing anybody wants to do is read and react to that report because it's exhausting to create Mm -hmm. and so we try to create it in a way that's replicable and automated so that our clients can show up and have their data be ready and shift that time from how do I make my report to starting with the report and saying, now what can I do next month quarter to make it better? Right. So, so ultimately we want to drive, you know, human services towards quality improvement and very often one of the obstacles to being able to put energy towards that is just the minimum requirement to even get the data organized and in some viewable fashion. So, so yeah, we're, we're data people that do, you know, data work. Um, but the framework that we're driving it towards is so that experts can spend their time doing expert things to improve the data. And you mentioned, I think, a big part of what you do is with the storytelling part of it, right? To make sure that and um, convince people that your problems can be solved through Mm -hmm. this storytelling. And that is a good transition, I think, into our fun bits. Okay. Fun bits. All right. So with that, being a quality improvement professional, I see that you also uh, post a lot about being a quality improvement dad. So, yeah, actually. So I I have one. um, I have I have one kid. My son um, is about to turn three years old. 
Um, and <laughs> so quality improvement dad was created because um, I can't help but look for efficiencies like <sighs> and even before I understood like data like um, you know I have a couple I have a couple quirks that are born out of this. Um, I basically refuse to wear shoes that need to be tied. Um, and the reason is because I never leave the house or come home uh, to the house without some stuff in both my hands. I have like backpacks, gym bags, like I'm always carrying stuff for whatever reason. So a long time ago, I decided my only footwear can come on and off without the use of my hands because I don't want to set everything down to take my shoes off. I don't want to set everything down to put my shoes on. And so they're either tied loose, but like even my, even my running shoes are slip on. So like, it's just kind of, so, so, all right. So I've lived, I've lived with like a couple of those quirks, like my whole life. Right. But then um, having kids, like the amount of things that you have to do regularly for kids and you know i was su surprised by it all probably just like any, anybody else but it just created this amazing pursuit of efficiency and sometimes it's a little you know sisyphus push to the rock up the hill but i can't like stop looking for it so um so i post on linkedin as uh the quality improvement dad stories about ways that i look for you know efficiencies in parenting and you know around the house and stuff um, you know, do, do we want to talk about it? I could talk about a few. If, if I want, yes, okay. I want to hear some examples. Okay. So the, <laughs> the first thing, the first thing that, that I have to remind people to make this make sense is that data is not always numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, you know, we're also like come from an evaluative, um, standpoint where like, data can be ones and zeros, it could be math, it could be, but it could also be, you know, an interview recording or, um, you know, data's information and mm -hmm. it's in its rawness, it can take any form, right? So I, I say that to say that I'm not at home spreadsheeting my life and my parenting. Like I'm not actually, what? yeah, right. Which is fine, <laughs> which is fine if, if people do that. Uh, I've no, I've no problem with that, but just so you know, when I talk about like, I'm trying to improve something at home, I want to tell you like how I'm, how I'm framing, you know, the measurement of it. So it'll be things like, okay, right now, um, you know, we, we, we start getting ready for bed at a, uh, like seven 30. Right. And for a long time, uh, you know, I, when it was my turn, I'd go, we'd brush teeth, we'd, and then we'd get in bed and we'd read a couple books and then, you know, lights out and, and bedtime. And I would come back downstairs and I'd look at the clock and it'd be like 7.50 and I'm like, oh, cool. Like, you know, kids asleep, 7.50, you know, that was great. Um, I can watch a movie. My wife and I can watch a show. Like it's, you know, it's gonna be nice. And then uh you know fast forward like a couple weeks ago i started coming back down the stairs and it was like 8 15 and i'm like this is taking like 45 minutes like what you know can he's changing right is is what happens so there's a lesson in like yeah you think your data is just humming along but the environment around your data starts changing and yeah. you're running the same operation you're producing the same data but the environment is changing the context of that data and so your your output is different right 
So after a couple of times, I'm like, wait a minute, I used to get this done in 20 minutes. Now it's taking 45 minutes. What's going on? And, you know, I'm like, so let me reassess the environment. The environment is um, now we're reading. Um, he, he Now he picks the books. So he picks five books. I used to only pick two. Right. So, OK. okay. We, so we've elongated there. Um, he used to sleep in a crib, which means he couldn't reach out of the crib. But now that he sleeps in a bed, he wants a water bottle nearby. So just before bed, he says, I need, and where's my water bottle? Which means I got to go get the water bottle, come back out. So, you know, so the quality improvement, dad, it doesn't take very many instances of this taking 45 minutes before like my, whatever software my brain's running, whatever iOS I have is going alert, alert, alert. Like this is your efficiency is like blown up. You need to reassess. So, you know, we start talking about things like, okay, can you pick two books? And when he picks five, I have, we narrow it down to two before we start reading. Cause once you start, you have to, they're in order you have to finish them uh-huh. um now i bring the water bottle up at the beginning because i know it's going to be asked for it's like it's just you know and i can proudly say that i'm 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 moving that dial back yeah. you know closer to you know 20 25 minute bedtime routine instead of 45 minutes but but man that's just what's happening recently like when they're babies and there's uh-huh. toys and like it's there's there's so much um, and you know, anybody who's ever like tried to get a toddler dressed and out of the house knows what I'm talking about. Right. So, um, you know, I used to, let's see what else I used to try to do things at the same time, right. As much mm-hmm. as you can set something and let it happen and then work on something else at the same time, like that's good, right. That's a common efficiency. Well, if you try to get your kid ready for school while you make coffee, you're going to end up getting your kid ready for school and leaving the coffee behind or spill or <laughs> spilling it or, you know, whatever. Right. Yep. So, you know, process change required for me. I actually, I wake up before my son, I make my mm. coffee. I, I mix my cream and sugar. I stir it up. I go put it in the car. Yes. And then I go get him ready because that's the only way to be sure that I have found in my, you know, sort of, gut analysis of how many times I left my coffee sitting in the coffee pot and gone to work without it is, um, you know, quality improvement. Dad said, if you want to make sure you have coffee, you got to do that before Mm -hmm. you can do the other thing. Same time doesn't work here. Right. Yeah. So I I don't know, like it sounds silly, but um, it sort of makes it fun for me to, um, you know, but I'm not running a business at my house or anything super crazy like that. It just makes it fun (laughs) for me to analyze you know what i'm doing and like ultimately it's an analysis of how kids change you and how yeah how they you know force you to react to you know i haven't i'm gonna i'm an adult who hasn't changed much about myself in a long time right and they're just changing you know week to week month to month and so you have to adapt to keep up and it's it's not unlike what happens to us in business anybody who's Mm -hmm. doing the same thing today that they were five years ago um is on their way out of business because that's just how we have to be adaptable to changing markets, changing preferences from our customers, you know, changing methodologies, new, I mean, I don't want to turn this into an AI episode, but like, that's just starting to change the whole, the whole game for the yes. way people are thinking oh about, about how to do things. And, um, 
it, you know, I could, if I could say anything about AI, it's got people who um, didn't usually think about, or they, they thought you could never find faster ways to do certain things are reopening the conversation to, oh, wow. Like automating writing, like people weren't even looking yeah. for ways to automate writing. And now people are like, well, why would I ever write anything from scratch? AI writes and I, and I edit, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty, it's kind of a wild time for, for data in that way. It is. It is. I love that quality improvement, Dad. It really, uh, you know, highlights that it's not just about the data, it's about the environment. So that really brings the analysis um, full circle and how, how much harder it is to analyze stuff because of the changing environment. So that's awesome. I love that. Speaking of data analysts and analyzing things, you Mm -hmm. also made a post about an acid influence jam band being the key to your success of being a data analyst. Can you go more into that? Yeah. So, um, I love that you just are asking me to tell stories because that's that's the fun part. Yes. So it's We're all so, about stories. <laughs> it's so funny because I was God, I was not a jam band kind of person. Um, I really wasn't. I grew up on um the Seattle grunge scene and the Southern California punk rock groups and you know that you know you couldn't play loud enough fast enough for me when I was um when I was growing up and when I when I took that that job um at a human service agency to do data and quality improvement for them there was a um a wonderful wonderful guy there working in our mental health clinic and we like music so we talk music and he would tell me um the grateful dead's the best band out there you really you know how to give it a try and i'm i just again i thought i was never a data person i thought i was never a grateful dead person i just i just said like god talk about uh making assumptions i just i just had i had written that off God, I was probably 15 when I decided I, I wouldn't be a Grateful Dead person, right? Like, mm-hmm. nope, that's me. So I was driving home one day from the store and classic rock radio station put a Grateful Dead song on. And I was like, oh, I really like this song. And they're like, you know, that's a, you know, a hit from the Grateful Dead. And I'm like, well, wait, if I like that song, and that was the Grateful Dead. And this other guy's telling me that they're the best band around. Maybe I should give them a shot. So, so I did. And what happened was, this was really my first job um, in, in data where a lot of people probably already knew this about how their work was going to go. But it was a wake up call for me how I was going to work eight hours a day some days and like not talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I was going to, uh, I was probably the, best example I can remember was like the day I had to learn how to merge and append queries in Power BI, like to make something work. And man, I had to get that wrong a hundred times before I got it right. And like, well, let me try this and then go back and test it and, you know, test it against my known numbers and see if I'm getting it right. And I'm like, wow, you really have to like, you have to blow this stuff up and then put it back together in order to find out if you've 
done it right. Mm -hmm. And if the phone rings, if somebody opens my door, if any of those things like break my thought, the amount I'm going to have to start over, right, to, um, you know, retrace my steps, right, to get back in it. And it was, it was a lot like writing for me in that way, having your concentration broken, there's a whole period of getting back into it, which is time lost. If, it, if you get disrupted. Mm -hmm. so, okay, so Grateful Dead are known for their live performances for anybody not familiar. And they were also one of um, the few bands that encouraged concert goers to record their concerts. Okay. So this is really, really important because where a lot of artists would they you they would make sure you had no recording equipment right the grateful dead said by all means come re record our our concert and the reason why we're totally comfortable with that is we never play the same song the same way twice we never played the mm. set list in order like all of our concerts are unique that's part of our of our fluid like you know a lot of bands go on a tour and they have their set list and that's what they play every night in every city and and, and the grateful dead had a much more fluid approach to that so what you end up with is this really huge catalog of their concerts being recorded. So instead of having like, you know, 10 to 20 studio albums, there's two to 3,000 live concert recordings that are available to people to listen to. And instead of being a half an hour, 45 minute album, you can throw on a three, four hour concert and listen to it beginning to end. So at the same time that I'm starting to explore the Grateful Dead, it's the same time I'm really starting to get comfortable with myself as a data analyst who needs this kind of work. And a 25-minute punk album that was going to end, that I was going to have to stop and find something new to listen to, was going to be broken concentration that I was starting to recognize that I couldn't afford. Okay. So putting on a four-hour Grateful Dead concert gave me background noise with actually long instrumental things which made me not inclined to try to like be singing along and taking my concentration <laughs> that way yeah. right so i'm like yeah i'm like enjoying this new music and then it get when it gets very jammy it actually just sort of helps me stay in this data zone of like okay organizing this stuff and i go four hours before anything is telling me like you got to go switch the album and actually mm -hmm. what happens with grateful dead concerts is once that album looped back around it would usually be halfway through the same concert a second time before i'd realized that it even like turned over that i was listening to songs again twice so if you kind of like just think about that perfect storm i had this summer where i was just building a lot of reports and i was just finding Grateful Dead concerts to listen to to supplement my work and the next thing I knew I woke up and I had spent like $500 on Grateful Dead concerts on my iPhone <laughs> and, and, and 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 I'm you know pulling up new ones on YouTube and like and I just sort of woke up one day it was like oh my god I'm a deadhead and um and and, and the data aside I'm a big fan of the music oh my god I'm going to my first uh quasi grateful dead concert this summer in july oh, how exciting. um still some of the original band members playing so um yeah i'm really excited my grateful dead journey is kind of coming full circle in the next that is of. very exciting <laughs> yeah yeah so. 
That's awesome. I have to listen to things like the lo-fi hip hop or like just uh, colors of noise, like white noise, mm. brown noise, pink noise is one of my favorites for, for studying, but nice. that's awesome. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that listening to this music really gets you in the zone for working. Mm -hmm. My question to you is, what else do you do to really like get into working or learning new things? Yeah. Um, good question. I think so. The key for me when I'm learning something new is having something familiar to relate to at the start. Mm -hmm. And I think I think my data journey is actually a, a perfect way to illustrate that. And and so I'd say the bulk of the like Power BI work that I've done, let's use that as the skill that I that I had to learn, right? Power BI is a skill. Obviously, there's a lot of disciplines within it, but let's just yeah. let's just call it that. So in order to learn Power BI, even though most of my work in it was done with behavioral health data. In order to learn it, I had to use data sets that I knew intimately, right? Mm. So when I first started the tool, I was using um, like Salesforce CRM data because that was, I understood what fields the sales reps were entering when they were supposed to be entering them, what they meant, why, how they related to other fields that were in there. So when I did my first Salesforce data dump into Power BI, I already knew what was in there from a raw data standpoint, mm -hmm. which means I at least had gut checks on what things I should be seeing in my visuals and in my measures that I was building. So that let me learn how to do relationships like because it was all that so then applying that tool to other data sets i had already had the fundamentals of the tool just had to learn how to apply it you know to a new set of data so yeah. what i tell people anybody who's looking for um looking to learn power bi or even you know any other you know analytics tool that requires some raw data is go to your online banking platform export your transactions throw them in there and make some analysis for yourself because you will know you know how the data is created it's created when you swipe your card on the day you swipe your card which is the day they take your money or it's created when you put money in your account and you know you do that when you get paid or when you deposit a check if you're old like like me or if you do any any of, of of those who are like what is it now if your venmo you know venmo deposit comes in or like you know how all of the data is being created in your bank transaction yeah because you control it so throw that into power bi and ask yourself what percentage of my transactions are over twenty dollars versus under twenty dollars or you know, timeline track my uh, my expenses against my deposits. And if you're if you're building with the tool, you'll know if you got it really wrong because your gut knows what your finances are. Right. Yeah. So that like when I need to learn something new, 
anytime I can bring existing knowledge, no matter what it is that I can use as like that smell test or that gut check to whether I'm getting the new thing, right? Like that's where it, you know, it's all about, you know, learning for me, like um, making video, for example. Yeah. I like to make, you know, videos to post on LinkedIn. Well, I suck at making video, right? <laughs> but so I, what can I bring with me? I can bring my storytelling skills or like, I don't like being a video editor. So I bring my ability to prep a story and tell it end to end. So I don't have to edit. Boom. I make video now, but I'm not a video editor. Or, you know, what can you bring with you into something new that you have a confidence in so that you don't feel like you're at ground zero when you're trying to put it together? That's those, those are my tips for learning new things. I love that so much. The bank thing. That's genius. <laughs> Because you, it, I mean, you should know what transactions are going. Right. Into this. Well, if you don't, then then definitely do it so that you can start to learn <laughs> exactly. what's going what's going on in your bank account. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, do you have any other final words of encouragement, recommendation, tips, tricks for the audience? I would say I I have two things that I want to say for a data audience. Um, the first one is, and, and I know this term is out there, but um, human-centered design. And when I was doing most of my report building, um, I wasn't really aware of this concept, and I really wish I had been. Have your data move around your people. Don't try to move your people around your data. Mm -hmm. And I built, I had this one just gut-wrenching experience where I built a, this dashboard for a clinic operations and I showed it to them and they said, this is amazing. We love this dashboard. This is going to be great. It had like 10 different dashboard pages on it. And I said, great, like I'm, I'm a hero. Good. I've, I've done this and they're very happy. And maybe like six months later, I was just in a casual conversation with one of the users for that dashboard. I said, hey, is the dashboard still working for you? He said, yeah, really, you know, it's working really well. And I said, uh, maybe just for my own research, like, what do you like about it? Or what do you use most? And what do you not use? And the answer I got was, actually, I only use the 10th page, but I use it all the time. And I was like, the tense page was something I threw in at the end. Like I almost didn't, I almost didn't even have it in there. Right. And, you know, she didn't know that, but I went, wow, I accidentally gave them one thing that they're using and I ran the risk of giving them a hundred percent of nothing. Right. Yeah. And I realized that because I knew the data I took for granted how they wanted to see it and how it was going to be useful for them and what i gave them was what i thought or what i assumed mm -hmm. they should be looking at in the way i assumed they should be looking at it now i'm not wrong but what i made was a dashboard for me yeah. what i didn't what i didn't make was a dashboard for them and where I've learned over the years is in my eagerness to, and uh, everybody data person is going to be nodding along with this. There's an eagerness to please. Right. And I just couldn't wait to get it out. Um, and 
the the time between having the data modeled and having the dashboard output should have been slower, more consultative, and made sure that I was matching uh, not just their preferential views, but matching their data literacy levels. If you build something that's this complicated and what your audience can understand is this complicated, well, then you should have built it this complicated because, mm -hmm. um, you know, reports that people can't understand are not reports. They're just pictures, right? Um, so I'd say that to say that I also want to give um, a plug to... Um, Gilbert um, Eichenblum's book, um, People Skills for Analytical Thinkers, mm -hmm. because that's a, that's a huge part of this. And, um, you know, I do, um, I've done some, some teaching um, here and there over the years. And what I try to tell people is whatever you're doing, I think everybody's in sales, um, whether you like it or not. If you're in an interview, you're selling yourself. If you are you know, selling a product, you're selling a product, that one's easy. But if you're a data analyst making something, you actually have to sell your users on using it. Mm -hmm. And you can either build it without them and try to sell them on using it, or you can build it with them and it's gonna be a lot easier to sell them on using it because they helped you build it in a way that they basically told you, if you build it this way, I'll buy it. Yeah. But bring in your own expertise. So. Yeah, what I would tell anybody out there is um, try to move your data around the people, um, you know, not the other way around. That's great advice. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much, Tristan, for coming on the show and sharing all of your wonderful stories. I enjoyed it. I hope the audience will enjoy it. If they have any questions, where can they find and or follow you? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn um, exclusively. Find me by name um, or follow the hashtag quality improvement dad and um, get a little fun tidbits for what's going on in my house. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again. And as always, folks, happy learning.